And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, now, Craig, wait a minute now. Guys, let's let's be fair here. Uh, this is not going to work in American culture today. I mean, when you're talking about an environment in which there is so much hostility um, uh, towards Christianity, how can we ever hope to be successful at this? And yet, uh, Jim Ramsey, I have to point to what we see taking place with, let's say, the church in China today, where hostility, my goodness, exists not only institutionalized at the government level and local level, even by individuals in many villages and communities, where, let's face it, even even as we saw the spread of Christianity uh, here over the last 50, 60 years since the beginning of, of communism there, it's taken place without many of the so-called traditional trappings of, of um, Christianity in the West, meaning they don't have open evangelistic meetings, they don't do uh, Christian radio or television, you can't openly preach. Uh, there's many things that we see as sort of the necessary tools of sharing the gospel in the West that are completely absent in a place like communist China, and yet the church there is growing by leaps and bounds in one of the most hostile environments possible. That suggests to me that this idea of of growing the church as we share our faith in a hostile culture or a hostile environment is, is not only quite possible, but is happening today. Absolutely, and I think if you look historically, the Church often has, has been strongest when it's persecuted. Now, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not someone who's eager to see that happen here, but you're right, history shows that. I mean, look at the early Church, just the very beginning. I mean, the Church starts with these, this ragtag group of disciples, certainly in an extremely hostile environment. I mean, I've not seen too many Christians in America have been taken out to the, uh, the Colosseum and, and given to the animals, and yet... And yet the church grew rapidly during those first couple hundred years, and it was because people were living out their faith in community in a very hostile environment, and people took notice of that. And so, um, and that is, you're right, that's exactly what we see in China. I heard a Chinese believer one time uh, said this, I, I wish I could attribute the quote to the right person. He said, yes, in China we follow the Communist Party plan for, for church growth. <laughs> what the Communist Party plan for church growth? He said, yes. He says, we don't have seminary trained pastors. Um, we can't have more than 12 people meet together in, in a group. Um, and we can't depend on outside money. The, the, uh, the Communist Party's plan for church growth. <laughs> and of course, and it's so been. The point being a little bit facetious, but that, that the church sometimes grows best when you have this very kind of tight knit community approach to church rather than the larger institutional approach to church. And, you know, we understand certainly the frustration. There are moments in time when we've all felt frustration with what we see taking place in our American culture today. And yet a hostile posture towards the culture is only going to be received by those in the culture as uh, Christians being hostile toward them. And it was always suggested, certainly as I've read uh, Scripture, that the best way to attract people, that they will know us by our love, that we can attract others to the love of God by showing first the love of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you, know, you started to say with the Bruce Jenner story, and I've not been following that closely. And, you know, it. I'll be quite honest, I have a hard time understanding that. But at the same time, my question is, should we expect Bruce Jenner to act like a believing evangelical Christian? And if not, then why should we be mad at him for making the choices he's made? Or, you know, are, are we mandated to love him where he is and then understand what does that look like? And this obviously raises a lot of questions that I'm, I'm myself struggling to say, what is, how does that look in a lot of these really complicated situations? But I think some of the basic problem we run into is we expect 
our dominant culture to behave like believers when the fact is most of them are not believers. And so we need to lose that expectation and say, what does it look like for us to act like believers in that setting? We hear a lot of the phraseology about uh, culture wars, right? War with the culture, things of this sort. And, and of course, those, some of those militaristic terms, I know, from the non-believer perspective, uh, really intimidates people, and it, it sets up a very false idea of not only who we as the church are, but quite frankly, who, who Christ is and, and what his character is. It runs very contrary into the image we see of Scripture. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not about righteousness, Right. And holiness, I'm not suggesting that we need to somehow pull back from uh, taking a strong stand when it comes to being salt and light. But when we talk about engaging the culture uh, from a missional standpoint, uh, and, and based on your experience in doing this, you know, on a, a full-time basis in a full-time and mission environment, when we talk about it from that viewpoint, Jim, uh, some closing thoughts just in terms of how you see we as the church ought to be engaging the culture and society around us as we can then be most effective in reaching others for Christ. Well, a couple of things I think are, are critical. One thing, we, we have got to regain the concept of community. We, we somehow replace community with, with the kind of church and Sunday school, which themselves are not bad things at all. Don't ever get me wrong on that. But that, that sitting in a sanctuary for an hour on Sunday and maybe even going to a, um, a Sunday school class that morning is not replacing community. So I think we have to discover community because that's what people are hungry for and are attracted to. So, so we need, first off, we need as believers to be living in community. Um, and then I think, secondly, understanding that, that discipleship is the model that Jesus and the disciples used to, to, to increase the church. And so finding those relationships where we can naturally live life with people, talk about life issues with people. Um, I don't find people are not resistant to spiritual discussions. They're resistant to spiritual formulas <laughs> where we try to trivialize the, the hard issues of life. But when we when we're willing to engage with people in in hard issues of life from our faith perspectives rather than trivializing them or having pat formulaic answers, um, I've not found that people are close to that. Uh, So I think those are are a couple things I say right off. It's just, let's just be more attractive. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I'm glad there's believers who are in politics. I'm glad there's believers who are are out in the public square. And we should pray for them and encourage them. Uh, But but I think the the militaristic language is, is not helpful. And uh, it, like you said, it does. It, it kind of spooks people because their idea of religious people already is kind of intolerant. People who want to, you know, restart the Spanish Inquisition, and so they're already thinking that. And we just kind of add gas to that understanding. It's it's not helpful. Well, and it seems to me it's the easy way out. I mean, any of us can 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 quote chapter and verse and engage in a good hefty round of biblical browbeating. And, and and beat somebody into submission, and we feel good about ourselves afterwards because, by golly, we told them. And that doesn't really require much of our heart, nor our life, nor our time. It's something entirely different to engage in biblical love, whereas you talked about your experiences in Kazakhstan really engaged in discipling relationships. Well, my goodness, now that really that really calls uh, me out to, to, to engage more, to invest more of my heart and my life. And as I do so, of course, you ultimately become very more effective in, 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 in introducing your Jesus to others. And so I, I guess it really is the difference between do we just want to take the easy way out and engage in biblical browbeating or really engage in biblical love? You can certainly put it that way, I think. Absolutely. 
Well, Jim, we appreciate the insights. It's, it's a brilliant article, and I think one that, uh, that really ought to cause all of us to pause and really take account of uh, what it means to live the missional life in America today in 2015. I'll point folks towards the website, uh, themissionsociety.org. That's themissionsociety.org, or maybe just do a Google search. You'll wind up finding it. The article is called Living Missionally in a Post-Christian Context. And our thanks to Jim Ramsey, Vice President Mission Ministries for the Mission Society, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, let's talk about some of the challenges when it comes to parenting and the whole issue of expectations. I think as parents, we all bring children into this world with a heartbeat, with a desire to want to see our kids successful. You know, we want the kid that will grow up to be uh, the doctor or the lawyer, and yet sometimes they grow up to be the artist. And in that comes a sense of disappointment we have as parents. Then, too, beyond the notion of our ideals for our children not necessarily matching their ideas or their goals. And there's the sense oftentimes you hear of parents who try to live vicariously through their children. Yes, we want a better life for our kids. Sometimes we want our life or the life that we thought we should have had growing up ourselves for our kids. And then the frustrating level comes in when, as parents, we try to raise perfect little children and yet they turn out to be less than perfect. Is that a fault of less than perfect parenting? Let's find out as we are encouraged to, quite frankly, kind of uh, rethink our thinking and um, realize that we need to love our kids for who they are. We no more need to worry about perfect kids. Jill Savage is the co-author of this new book. And Jill, great to have you on the program. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Jarell can't. There? Ah, there we are. Sorry about that. I my headphone for some reason suddenly failed on me. <laughs> Jill, let's talk a little bit about first some of the ideals that parents bring into this job as parenting. You know, I, I think the the notion that we want a better life for our kids. I mean that that stands to reason. Um, oftentimes, we want our see our kids grow up to uh, to have better opportunities or be more success, successful either economically or or socioeconomically than than we were coming up as our kids. And yet suddenly, this goal toward creating these perfect little people can become very frustrating, not just for ourselves, but also for our kids. It really can. And you know what happens as parents is, um, you know, particularly with that first child, uh, that child is, you know, either you're spending nine months uh, preparing for them, you know, as, as they're uh, growing in your, your belly or they're, you're preparing nine months, 12 months if you're adopting and you are imagining what life is going to be like with them. You're imagining what they're going to be like. You're imagining what they're going to like and the things that you're going to do together. And that's all great. I mean, that's normal for parents to dream, but then we meet our real child. And all of a sudden, over time, as we get to know that child, often the imagined child doesn't match the real child. And so at some point, we really have to separate those out, and we have to embrace the real child that's in front of us who may not look anything like the imagined child. Uh, their, their likes, their dislikes, their abilities may not be anything like the imagined child. And so we have to be willing to embrace the real child standing in front of us 
recognize they're going to be different than us. They're going to have different goals and different dreams and different talents. And uh, be able to lay that imagined child uh, to rest and really embrace your real child that's standing in front of you. And and that's uh, one piece of No More Perfect Kids that we look at is uh, really coming to grips and loving our real child. Is this an issue that a lot of parents struggle with, a sense of failure perhaps, because as as the child reaches a certain age, they, they, they compare the the imagined child with the reality of what is standing before them. And when one image doesn't match reality, do they get oftentimes get very depressed at the sense that I've somehow as a parent failed my child? I think some of us uh, look at it through the lens of failure. I think uh, others of us look at, at it through the lens of disappointment. Uh, I think some of us look at it through the lens of uh, still trying to make the child into something that they're not really designed to be. And so we become more controlling and uh, demanding the, of, of the child. So I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, as parents we can respond to this But the most important thing for us to do is to really study our child, get excited about the way that God has created them uniquely. It may be very different than the way he's created us. It might be somewhat different than the way that he's created us. It might even be somewhat similar. Who knows? Uh, One example, I have five children, and uh, four of my five children are musical, and so am I. So I was actually have a degree in music education, and, and so I, I loved that for my kids. I wanted that for them. Um, I was trained to, to play the piano classically. I can You put a piece of music in front of me, I can play it. Uh, most of my kids play by ear. They don't want to mess with the music. They want to hear the music, and then they want to be able to sit down at the piano and do it themselves. I can't do that. My ear is not trained. I don't have that inclination, but they do. Now, it used to frustrate me because, honestly, they really struggled with lessons and learning the classical side of things because they wanted the freedom to be artists. And I was really frustrated with that until I realized that I was trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And I needed to let them be the musicians that they were, which is very different than the way I'm a musician. And you mentioned um, that this this follows four of the five children. Now, what about the fifth child? (laughs) Well, the fifth child has absolutely no inclination towards music at all. (laughs) Nothing. Uh, And he had no, he took piano lessons for a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, it became very evident that it just wasn't his thing. Uh, he loves to work with his hands. He loves to build things. He loves to uh, run. And so those were, uh, you know, those were skills, talents that uh, I didn't share, but I had to embrace in him. And so, you know, after he did an obligatory year or two of piano, and we, we really studied him and said, you know what? this just isn't a good fit, then we had to let that go. There has and to be some sense of surrendering here too then, doesn't there? I mean, in, in, in the sense that at the end of the day, what we want for them and what they want for themselves or the talent, skills, and abilities that God has, has entrusted to them may not be necessarily the ones on your list. You're right. So surrender is a piece of it. And the other thing that I think is important is sometimes we do have to grieve. 
sometimes we actually have to grieve the imagined child or the imagined activity or the imagined way that we were going to interact with our children. We have to grieve that. Um, maybe, you know, maybe your child doesn't share any of the same type of hobbies or interests that you have. And you always pictured that you would be able to do X together. And, and they don't even have any desire to do X. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a special needs child. Special needs parents really have to come to grips with this because that, you know, none of us imagine ourselves having a special needs child, a child that's handicapped in some way, uh, that has some physical or emotional or mental challenges. And so uh, as parents, it could be as simple as our children just have different skills, gifts, talents, wiring, temperaments, personalities than us. And it could be something all the way on the other side of the spectrum uh, where, you know, a parent is dealing with a special needs child and their life doesn't look anything like what they thought it would. I would suspect there's a big point of perspective here that parents need to be reminded of. I mean, this notion that when kids grow up to be an artist, when what you really wanted was, you know, a doctor or a lawyer in the family, uh, dealing with that disappointment and gaining some perspective on, on really kind of the priorities here. We'll talk about that when we continue our conversation after a brief timeout. Jill Savage is with us, co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief time out. Come back as we answer the question, okay, so when your little artist fails to be the doctor or lawyer that you wanted, what's God telling you on all this? That is this edition of Lifeline with Jill Savage continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. No more perfect kids. I mean, let's just be done with it, shall we? In fact, maybe as parents we need to admit that um, our expectations don't always line up with reality. And and the other issue here, too, as we were discussing with um, author Jill Savage, who's co-authored the book with Kathy Cox, um, called No More Perfect Kids, perhaps, too, it's a matter of uh, prioritizing. And by that, I mean, uh, Jill, perhaps the frustration here is we look at them as our kids. You know, we, we raised them, we fed them, we clothed them, we pay for them, um, we nursed them when they were sick the whole nine yards, uh, or the whole nine months in the case of mom. <laughs> And at the end of the day, we kind of treat them as if they are our own, when in reality, they were God's children first. Is that part of the issue here that we're maybe failing to recognize that God has endowed them with talents and skills and abilities, and he has a plan for their life and a calling on their life that perhaps doesn't match the one that we've come up with or conjured up in our own minds? Yes, absolutely. You know, Psalms tells us that uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And as parents, our job is to discover how our children are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's really the journey that we need to be on. And uh, one of the things that that we talk about in the book is we talk about the concept of um, that culturally, we believe that there is something called, that we've dubbed, the perfection infection. And the perfection infection surrounds us all the time. Uh, We are... Uh, you know, we, we go through the checkout line at the grocery store and we see the front of magazines that talk about perfect bodies, perfect families. Um, you know, they, they give the, the, um, the perception that perfection is attainable. Uh, we watch a television show. We watch a sitcom and a difficult issue is solved in 30 minutes. We watch a movie and a difficult issue is solved in two hours. 
And that's not the way our real life is. And so without realizing it, we often put some pretty unrealistic expectations on ourselves as well as our kids. And then we leave God out of that picture Mm. because we begin to make an idol out of pursuing perfection or in some way presenting perfection to the rest of the world. And I think social media adds to it as well. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's very common to see on Facebook, hey, I'm so proud of my son. He made the honor roll. You don't very often see on Facebook, well, today was such an enjoyable day. We got a phone call from the principal because of uh, something that our child did at school. You don't see that very often. So we are constantly... Um, comparing our insides to other people's outsides. Our, our, we're comparing our children's behind-the-scenes behavior to other people's, um, you know, I would call uh, highlight reel behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their kids seem to behave well when they're in public, and we know what ours do behind doors as well as in public at times. So without realizing it, we often put some uh, really unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others because of the perfection infection, and then we leave God out of the picture. Well, and then there, that leads to a point that you discuss in the book, and I have to tell you something, uh, Jill. My hands off to you and your co-author, um, and you imagine down through the years I have interviewed thousands of uh, parenting experts. Uh, you know, many that the listeners are very well familiar with. You know, up to including the you know the Jim the uh, uh, Jim Dobsons of the world and so on and so forth. But you bring up something in the book that I've never seen articulated in a certain fashion before that ought to set every parent back on their heels, and that is this. Um, we do a lot in terms, as you suggest, of wanting to uh, see our kids. Uh, be more successful at life than we were. We want them to have advantages that we did not have. Uh, we try to pass on this sense of uh, of perfection, as you suggest, that oftentimes can be very frustrating to a child when they don't have the capacity to be able to to match us in that level of perfection. We're trying to create kind of a, you know, Martha Stewart kids, I'll call them, you know? Right. They're capable of doing everything, and they do it perfectly. That's what we want, but of course, we also understand that that's not reality. But meanwhile, as we're trying to kind of force this false dichotomy, this false um, paradigm on our children, it can be very, very frustrating for them. And you ask a question inside the book, that I think every parent ought to really ponder, and that is simply this. Of course, we want to say that we love our kids. And most kids, I think, if they stop and pause, uh, will say, yeah, I know, I know, I understand in my heart of hearts that mom and dad love me. That's not up for debate. Here's what's up for debate. The big question that I have that's unanswered, and that is, do mom and dad like me? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And and the answer to that question and how our children would respond to that says so much about our parenting skills, doesn't it? It really does. And it it, it really doesn't and it doesn't matter what we um what we say like, you know, it, yes, of course my children know that I like them. The bigger question is would your child really be able to say that? Uh, the, the bigger question is, how do I make my child feel? That really says a lot about our parenting. And that's why 
uh, in No More Perfect Kids, we also give parents the antidotes to the perfection infection. And those antidotes uh, spell out the acronym CLAP so that we can celebrate our kids. We can clap for our kids. And C is compassion. To see the world through their eyes, to build a bridge into their reality, to have a sense of compassion and empathy for them. And this isn't Um, about a popularity contest. I mean, some parents would say, now, wait a minute, Craig, how dare you suggest, you know, my job is not to be a friend to my child. I am there to be their parent. I have to be able to be the one that will give them guidance and correction, draw the line in the sand when need be, provide discipline when necessary. I am not so concerned about whether or not my kids like me or I like my kids. It's important that they know I love them, but I, at the end of the day, have to be the parent. And while all that is well good and very accurate, there is this little subtle thing going on where the child can walk away as you're as you're pushing this sense of of your perfection on them and trying to create a child that lives up perfectly to your standards that a child can walk away readily and really really have a big challenge here emotionally thinking I know mom and dad love me but you know I I didn't turn out to be the lawyer that they wanted to be but I'm a really good artist so I guess maybe they love me they just don't like me Wow, what a what a burden that is to carry as a child. It really is. It really is. And you know, I I mean, I am a firm believer parents are not designed to be their children's friends. I mean, all the things that you just said, I would absolutely agree with. Uh, before I got serious about ridding myself of perfection infection parenting, I was a buck up mom. Buck up. Move on. Life, sometimes life's hard. I was just a buck-up mom. I didn't have a lot of compassion. I didn't have, now, I, I gave my kids direction. I gave them uh, certainly a structure in their lives, but I didn't really know them. And that's where, that's what we're talking about in No More Perfect Kids is a balance between that. Uh, certainly being the disciplinarian, being the leader of our children but balancing that out with truly knowing our children. Well, and, you know, that leads also to an important question that we can elaborate upon when we come back after a brief time out, and that is, parent, ask yourself this question. Is the the time in your relationship with your child when you give them the most attention just the times when they're in trouble? Ponder that as we'll take a time out and come back to more of our conversation. Jill Savage, the co-author of No More Perfect Kids, Love Your Kids, for who they are. We'll take a brief time out, then back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Okay, here's the big question for you, parents, and that is simply this. Do your kids tend to get the most attention when they're in trouble? And what are you doing the rest of the time? Addressing that question, the book, No More Perfect Kids, Love Your Kids for Who They Are. Co-author Jill Savage is with us. And and Jill, what about that? I mean, I know that we live very busy lifestyles, and oftentimes both parents are working and we're running to and fro. We've got jobs to maintain. We have houses to to take care of, grocery shopping to do. Got to get the kids to uh, everything from band practice to soccer practice and everything in between. And then we we think we're giving our kids a lot of attention, but then the the real one-on-one attention seems in some cases to only really excel when they're in trouble. Uh, it's true, and I think it's an easy way, an easy place for us as parents to, to fall into. Uh, you know, the book is built around questions that each of our kids 
are asking deep inside their hearts. They're questions that we asked when we were kids. Uh, those questions are uh, simple questions like, um, do you like me? You know, that was one that, that you mentioned a little bit earlier. But another question is, am I important to you? And uh, in today's uh, fast-paced life, oftentimes our kids are only getting our attention when they do something negative, when we're correcting them, and that doesn't tell them that they're important. And so I think we really have to, um, we have to, and, and also if our goal is to get to know our child, to study our child, uh, only, you know, interacting and knowing them when, when their behavior is negative is not going to help us explore. Uh, so we really need to spend time with our kids. We need to, to dig into to life with them. And, um, you know, we have a, a son that, are, the one that wasn't musical that I uh, was sharing earlier, he loves to run. And when he was in junior high, uh, we encouraged him to do cross country. And he actually, when he was in seventh grade, he won the, the state cross country meet. And so here he was, seventh grade, he was winning state. And in our minds, we're thinking, by the time he gets to high school, he is going to be one of the top runners and possibly have scholarship opportunities. So, of course, we encouraged him to keep going and keep going and keep running. And he hated it. He hated cross country. And we thought, why? Why? He loved to run, but why? Well, we spent some time digging into that. And, and instead of just correcting him and pushing him, uh, we, you know, just tried to have some very intentional conversations and really come to understand him. And it took us a while to dig it out of him and figure out what was at the heart of it. But here's the deal. He loved to run. He hated competition. Mm. This is where knowing our child and knowing their heart and, and having compassion and love and acceptance and perception, those are the uh, four antidotes to the perfection infection. So perception is that we're really perceiving or trying to perceive or paying attention to what's going on on the inside of our child's heart. How do we know, though, when to push and when not to push? Because there's another example out of the book that you share with yes. uh, one of the four musical children whom you encouraged to take a semester of choir, and I understand that he went into that thing kicking and screaming all the way, and uh, in a couple of days into it said, forget about it, I'm not going to do it, and all these fights, and you insisted he had to complete at least one semester, and slowly all of a sudden he's coming home and talking about new friends that he met in choir practice, and they're going to be traveling here to do this, and before you know it, uh, this became, as you suggested inside the book, one of the highlights of his scholastic career. So how do you know that delicate balance of, of when to push and when not to push? That is a great question, and it comes down to knowing your child. You, it comes down to paying attention to the little things. That same child, I also share a story in the book, that that same child wanted to play football when he was in sixth grade. And the only place you could do that was on a community team. And so we made arrangements for him to, and we couldn't imagine. He didn't seem like the football type, but he wanted to play football. And so we uh, allowed him to do that. And he came home the first day uh, from practice, hated it. Uh, in tears, I don't want to go back. And we said, oh, my gosh, of course you're going back. You've wanted this, you know, for years, and uh, you're not, we're not raising a quitter. 
And so we sent him back the second time. He came back again in tears. I hate it. I don't want to do this anymore. Third day, same thing. By the fourth day, I noticed that he had actually bit his nails down to the quick. He, his nails were bleeding. This child was so emotionally uh, overwhelmed and distraught with the possibility of going to that football practice that I remember the day that my husband and I said, oh, my gosh, this is not worth it. This is not worth it. It's, it is stressing him out in a way that is unhealthy. And we actually allowed him to quit. So then several years later, of course, when we required him to take the music class that he didn't want to take, uh, we didn't see that same kind of stress. We saw his will, and he was not happy that we were requiring him to take choir. Um, but you know what? He eventually... Uh, grew to love it, and we thought that that would be the situation. So I think it comes down to paying attention to your child, really knowing them, and we could have just kept pushing him to do that football, and who knows where we would have been with him emotionally uh, because it was obviously stressing him out to to a place that was actually unhealthy. So I think it comes down to really paying attention to the little things, to what's going on on the inside, uh, to having those conversations. You know, our kids tend to like to talk at bedtime. And for parents, most of us are like, I want to just tell you good night, kiss you good night, and go to bed because I'm done. You know? Yeah. <laughs> We're just done you. at that moment in time. And that's a lot of times when we get to hear our kids' heart or they'll share something. And so we have to, we have to make ourselves available for those conversations and know our child and pay attention to those little things that often give us a clue to what's going on with them. And it comes back to such an important point of balance, as we've discussed, I think, throughout our visit today. And and you mentioned this in the book. Parents, we have to be mindful that our kids are created first and foremost. They They may look like us in the mirror, but at the end of the day, they're created in God's image, not our own. And we know that God has no stepchildren and that he has a unique individual plan and calling on each and every one of our lives. And what you want for your child, as wonderful and altruistic as it may be, may not necessarily be what God wants for your child. And so um, learning to know what the purpose and calling us of their, is on their life, allowing them to experience failure, correcting them without criticizing them, getting to know your kids, uh, particularly as, as you point out, Jill, the difference that it makes when we know as a parent when we should push and when not to push can make all the difference between um, not creating maybe or raising perfect kids, but certainly happy and successful children. And that, I think, at the end of the day, is the most important thing. It is. It really is. And I think the more uh, we get to know our children, and then as they get older, it's also important for them to get to know us and uh, for them to know that our failures, our struggles, and because at at some point they need to know we're not perfect either, Life is hard. We all have struggles. We all have things that we have to work through. Uh, Failure is a normal part of this living experience. And so the more we help our kids know that those are normal things in their life because they're normal things in our life, that also gives them permission to not try to be perfect, but to embrace what I call the perfecting process that God has all of us in. Because we mature best through our failures. 
through our struggles, through coming to know ourselves. Yeah, and, and that, that's the perfecting process. Indeed so. And, and of course, that perfecting process is one that God largely works out. And so at the end of the day, parents, you can have a deep sigh of relief here. No more perfect kids. Just loving our kids or who they are. The new book, by the way, you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Amazon.com has it as well. It's published by Moody and uh, our guest today, the co-author, Jill Savage. Information, too, on Jill's website at jillsavage.org. That's Jill, J-I-L-L, jillsavage.org. And our thanks to Arthur Jill Savage for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved.